Welcome back, everybody, to this week's edition of American Billiard Radio. My name is Mr. Bond. I'll be your host once again this week with Mr. Mark Cantrell of the Legends and Champions Report. How are you doing today, Mark? I'm doing good, thanks, Dave. By the way, today is January the 28th, 2016. The new year is off to a good start in the pool world. Um, you know, there's been lots of good stuff so far. But before we get into it, uh, some congratulations are in order. Uh, AZ Billiards has announced their 2015 Player of the Year award uh, awards, and they go to drum roll, please. <laughs> Uh, do you know who it is already, Mark? No. No? No? Okay. Really? You don't know who it is? Yeah. Are you going to tell us? I was going to leave you in suspense, man. Come on now. Okay. Uh, Copigny. You make a good radio. Copigny. And. Well, I'm like. Okay. Guy Young Kim. Yeah, okay. She's. Uh, I think she just kind of gets that every year now, doesn't she? <laughs> um, or the WPA's Player of the Year, at least. Um, and uh, Pinyi, yeah. I mean, he's had a fantastic year so far. Yeah. You know, it's, uh, oh, no, sorry. He, he, he had a fantastic year. Right. Last right. year. Right. Exactly. Um, exactly. Strong is, uh, you know, definitely a force to be reckoned with. Yeah. But uh, I know he, he, he hasn't started uh, as well as I thought he would this year. He's, uh, well, he did lose to Dennis, but, uh, you know, that's, I, you know, I mean, you can't win them all. Obviously, you got to lose some sometimes. So, you know, I don't know. I, it's too early to tell, I think. But you're right. You're damn right about he's... A force to be reckoned with. I don't think that will be the last yep. we hear from either of the Cole brothers or Miss Kim either. I'm sure she's going to be sticking. I don't around. know how old. I, I don't know how old uh, he is. That's a good question. Something. I I he looks, looks fairly young. Yeah. Uh, so I mean, he's got a lot of time. You know. That's a good question. I'm gonna have to look that up. I'd like to know at that at some point. But he did have a good year last year. That's for sure. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. So, um, speaking of uh, congratulations, we also have some other congratulations to offer. Um, goes out to Mr. Jason Shaw. He won the uh, Diamond Bigfoot ten, uh, ten Ball Challenge out at the Derby City Classic. So, uh, yeah. congratulations to Shaw for that. Because that was a brutal field that he went through for that. Yeah, he's. I you know I've I've said it for a, a long time. I, I don't know what he's changing about his play, but I've said he was going to end up. He's going to be. He's going to do something really, really big. Uh, I mean, talking about world titles, U.S. Open, that kind of thing. Uh, before. Too long. He's already there. He's already, you know, the, just winning the big foot on its own tells you the league is in. I just, uh, I've always said, 
I think is a little bit erratic. Mm. And yeah. the it's the same thing I say every time when I talk about Jason Shaw is some of his shots like Shingles and how fast he plays is erratic. But that is what's going to make him a fan of favorite. Yeah. You know, exciting player to watch. Um, and if he calms down just a little bit, uh, I, I don't think there'll be any stopping him. Yeah, he's going to just, well, he's proven it. He's doing so well. Yeah. No, man, that was a tough field, tough field to go through. I mean, Shane, uh, freaking uh, Okoyo, um, I just, I go through the list, you know, the, uh, some of the best people on uh, in the Timball game, really. So congratulations to Mr. Shaw for that. And uh, congratulations also to, also to uh, John Brumback for taking the Banks title, actually. So uh, that certainly wasn't an easy field to go through either. There was uh, 375 players in just the banks alone. Yep, that's uh, that's pretty strong right there. And and John Brumback, I mean, I don't know how many times he's won the banks out in Derby City. There's not a whole lot of banks tournaments out there, but the biggest I, I think, not in my humble opinion, uh, or half vast knowledge, I think that the Banks at W City is the biggest Banks tournament with the right. biggest prize money yeah, right, in America. Right, right. Now, that's his third. So, that's his and third. I don't know how many times he's won it. Third, three times. So it tells you. Three times. Well, that, <laughs> that, that's amazing to get through that many yeah. players. Yeah. The good players. I mean, there's some fabulous players who right. can bank right. really, really well. Absolutely. And uh, Absolutely. we'll get through it three times. That's awesome. It just goes to show you that's that's his specialty. He knows something that everybody else that everybody else does. Yeah. Well, and that's uh, not an easy game either. You know what I mean? That's most people try to avoid <laughs> avoid bank shots <laughs> whenever possible. <laughs> Uh, so that's uh, it's not an easy game, that's for sure. We have also the uh, one pocket uh, is not finished. I think that's gonna be finishing up tonight. Maybe is that right? Or do you know? Uh, yes, yes, that's finishing. I believe that's finishing up tonight. I think that's finishing up. And tonight. I think Shannon. Um, hold on, uh, Shannon Murphy is just playing Jason Shaw in that. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, that that's also going to be one hell of a of a man because it, it 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 you got Pagalion, Efren, Busty, Shane, Scott Frost, Justin Bergman, John Brownback, Dennis Coyo, Justin Hall. That I mean, you can't get much of a tougher field to contend with. In one pocket than that group of gentlemen, right? Yeah, there. they're right. They're right down. They're getting down to the, the last few players now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. So, uh, so, and Jason Shaw's still in it. Yeah. Which, incidentally, so he won the big foot. And he came in second, yeah, came, on the banks. Yeah, that's incredible. Second in the banks. He's still in the one pocket. I mean, I, I, I do believe there's an all around uh, 
championship. Yeah. But who wins the most? Most points. Yeah, that's true. That's very true. And so far, he's in serious contention for getting that to the all around. That's for sure. That is for sure. Would not be surprised one bit to see how uh, if he comes out of that uh, with his with his head above the water. Also, there's the uh, obviously nine ball cranked up today. So the nine ball, we don't have much to report yet on that because we're just starting to unfold as we speak. But um, I the straight pool challenge is kind of coming down to it now. Also, uh, so far. They had um, runs as high as, I think, is it 225? Uh, I think it's 225, yeah. Yeah, Lee Van Corteza, is that it? Yeah. Um, and then I want to say Johnny was in second with 179 or so. And then you had, ah, Torsten, I think, 151. Uh, Dennis had one. 54, Stefanov had 149. Anyway, so the top eight are going to go into their um, their single elimination tournament. And so tonight, that's also going to be finishing up, I believe. So um, Yeah, at this, at this point, I believe that uh, Johnny was knocked out by Stefanov. Right. Okay, yeah. so I can never say his name. Um, Stepping off, yeah. And I'm trying to think who's uh, still in at this point. It keeps changing. Obviously, I think everything we're talking about here keeps changing as we're speaking. Uh, yeah, yeah. And yeah. the nine ball has started. That's kind of hard to follow. And I'm, I, I, I'm not sure who's streaming. Uh, I think it's Accustats. Mm-hmm. And. Uh, you know, because they do they redraw after every round, so you can't really get a schedule of who's playing. Right, right. You know, they don't they don't know who's going to be on their TV table. We can't advertise. It's going to be, you know, right, right. Appleton right. and Dalston because they don't know. Right, exactly. The redraw, and exactly. then there's people buying back in. Yes, and they have so, backs. Right, absolutely. That is true. Still a lot of pool left to go. That's for sure. There's all the, all of the remaining one pocket championships and the uh, straight pool championships and the nine ball. It's going to be unfolding over the next couple of days. So we'll certainly be getting back with you guys over the results of all that. See how it goes. I may down there. to a soon a little bit. Well, no, Jason Show is definitely in a good spot to be in for overall, but. Mm-hmm. The I, I don't know where he came in the straight pool. Right, right, yeah. I don't know if uh, ooh, that's I a don't good think question. He's still in or not? That's a really good question. But we know, we know one Brumback is still in the one pocket. So you know what? You never know. He might snap one off there too. Give um, give Shaw a run for his money. He is a yeah. Well, one pocket and bangs go together real well. Yeah, he's uh, Brumback is a former all-around winner, so he'd be looking for his second all-around title this year if he can pull that off. That would be awesome for him to be able to do that. Yep, that's good stuff, man. Really good stuff. Well, what else is coming up? 
I mean, you mean at Derby? No, what else is coming up? Uh, well, we got the uh, 100, <laughs> they're touting it as the $100,000 match. In Beloit, yeah, at the Karam Room, um, fifty thousand aside, that will be. Who is streaming that? Do you know off the top of your head who's streaming that? I think it's Upstate Owl. Oh, that's right. Yes, sir, it is Upstate Owl the, the of A Z TV slash Upstate Owl. That's right. That's right. And and I, uh, you know, we we talked about it a little bit last week. The Questions with John French is, is that money going to be, is that real, the 100000 And right. I'd say at the time, you know, because I, I don't know John French, you know, that's the issue that I have is, you know, he, I, he can cast aspersions maybe on uh, somebody that you, you don't know really, but I, I'm not going to do that, but I know that John Mars and Shane are involved, and if they say if they're okay saying that it's it's a hundred thousand, then it is fifty thousand yeah. each side. Sure, sure. But then, then I I've, I trust them, and then Pat Lenny posted something on AZ Billions forums, the main forum there. Uh, I don't know who he's spoken to, uh, but he's uh, pretty adamant that he's he's legit. So. Mm. That's uh, going to be a, a good good match. Yes. Exciting to watch. Yeah. As a matter of fact, if you want to check it out, the pay-per-view is going to be available uh, at uh, thecaramroom.com. www.thecaramroom.com. That's where you want to check on that. That is uh, February the 11th through the 14th. Four days. Um, I want to say it's fourteen, $15 a day. Uh, if you buy it ahead of time, there's like a special discount, an early bird, uh, only until February 1st. So if you plan on watching that, get over there and sign up for it now. Get your discount. If not, you know, blah, blah, blah. You'll have to pay for it. So it's 10 ball, standard rack, race to 160. Four days race, 40, day, 40 games per day. Or a race to 40 per day, I should say. A diamond pro cut table, winner breaks, and call shot. The start time is at 4 o'clock Central. That's a four-day event. Yes, sir. 11th through uh, Valentine's Day. So one of these two gentlemen, <laughs> either Dennis Orcoyo or Shane Van Boning, is going to get to buy his girlfriend a really nice gift on Valentine's Day this year. Yeah. Or... Somebody's going to get slaughtered, so maybe we should call it like the Valentine's Day Massacre. Sure. <laughs> oh, we don't know. I mean, I, I don't, does it, do, you, do you have information on what time it starts each day? It says 4 o'clock, 4 p.m. Central, Central Standard Time, which is uh, 2 p.m. specific. Uh, that's like 3 o'clock for Arizona. <laughs> you have your own time zone, so... You know that could, uh, if it turns out, if it, if those each day is close, like the Copenhagen and um, Dennis O'Colo match was, it was close the whole way. I think until the final day. Um, boy, that could turn into some late nights as well. Yeah, it could go. It could go a little ways. 
I mean, uh, how, how long does it take to play 40 wrecks? Just if you just say, we're going to play 40 wrecks, how long does it take? Let alone, you know, yeah. somebody gets 30, you get 40, it might be 70 wrecks. Yeah, yeah, that's very yeah. true. That is very true. It could take a while. So that's, you know, might be a pretty good deal to get that much pool for only $15. <laughs> you might end up watching it for eight hours. <laughs> yep. Oh, uh, no, that's funny stuff, man. You know, I think that um, February the 14th, wasn't that the day of um, the Willie Moscone versus Minnesota Fats? Yeah, it was. There was like a shoot. They called it the St. Valentine's Day massacre, but it was kind of a joke. Uh, one of the biggest pool matches that ever showed up on TV was on Valentine's Day uh, in uh, Galley G. Willikers. Man, what was it like? 19. 19- 70 something I guess 1978 it was Willie Moscone versus Minnesota Fats on TV that was the big uh, to do back then was it live? yeah yeah it was the real deal it was uh, they had been sort of bitter you know rivals their whole career and um, they both ended up at an exhibition match and they weren't supposed to play each other. They were both just in the same place at the same time. And uh, Fats was telling stories about how he beat everybody. He's beat anybody that ever lived. And Moscone happened to be right. in the room at the time. And and got really irritated. And these two faced off in this argument over whether or not Fats had ever beaten Moscone. And uh, Charles Ursitti, the historian promoter he was there at the time and he thought this would be a great matchup for television and so from that from that altercation he scheduled Willie Moscone versus Minnesota Fats for their first time and it took place on Valentine's Day in 1978 so it was called uh, you know St. Valentine's Day Massacre or whatever you want to call it but it was pretty cool it was pretty cool those two they it was the uh it got the most television coverage of any pool event in history. There was literally millions of people were watching it. I'll bet. That, that doesn't surprise me, really. That's, uh, especially back then, pool was a lot bigger, a lot, a lot more people were enthusiastic about it. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, you know, um, Willie Moscone and Minnesota Fats were household names. Right. You know. Um, you could go to a supermarket and say, you know who Willie Moscone is, and they'd say yes. Yeah. You go to a supermarket now and say, you know who Shane Van Boning is, and they'll go, oh, it's lazy. No? <laughs> oh. You know, so he, he was, there were household names then, and there was a rivalry there, and I think Bill Canton uh, was involved in it, who's, uh, you know, a, well, I don't know if he's still alive or not. It's, uh, you, was a great promoter in his time. Who's that? Charles? I think he was with the Worldwide of Sports. Yes, yes, he was. 
you, are you talking about Arsetti or Howard Cosell? I'm talking about Bill Cannon. Oh, okay. Never mind. I thought you were talking about the other guy. Never mind. Bill Cannon, he was, he was there. Uh, I remember, I've seen footage, I've seen the, uh, I think it was the match that you talked about, I've seen it. Like, Bill Cannon was, was always around those things, so I don't know if he managed one of them. Okay. I'm sure somebody, I thought you, you might know that, the historian. <laughs> I don't but, know. Uh, yeah, he, he he might, Bill Cannon managed uh, Tyson for a little while, Mike Tyson, and uh, Tommy Morrison, the boxer. You know, he's been involved in promoting everything, so. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, it was a big damn deal at the time. I mean, there. it's funny because this would not quite be the same. Uh, uh, the rivalry between... Orcoyo and Shane is not anything like the rivalry between Moscone <laughs> and Fats. But as far as their playing ability is concerned, it's kind of the proverbial equivalent. And it's a shame that it's not getting the same amount of attention, you know, that something like this did back in 78. They had... I mean, it was on ABC's Wide World of Sports, for Pete's sake, and got like 11 million views, viewers or something crazy like that. The only thing more that, no, I, more that got more coverage was boxing, like Muhammad Ali versus Leon Spinks. <laughs> so, I'd, I'd be interested, and I can maybe find out for next time, The name. how of many viewers they get for the Moscone Cup. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a really good question. I'd love to find out. Because it's, it's broadcast live all over Asia yeah. and uh, Europe. Right, right. And, you know, in Asia, they're crazy about this stuff. And, mm-hmm. you know, for Asia includes China. I mean, we got a billion people or something with that. And they're a big pool, you know, big pool fans. Yeah, yeah, that's absolutely true. So it might, right? It'd be interesting to know that. I'll, find, I'll try to find out. No. But other than that, you know, we've unfortunately this week we really don't have that much to talk about because what's happened is that the Bigfoot in the in the banks, and there's only so much we can say about it, and everything else is kind of up in the air. Right. And anybody who might want to interview, we're all running around Derby City trying to figure out if they need to buy back in or not. <laughs> right. Exactly. Exactly. <clears throat> Everybody's out Derby doing what you're supposed to do at Derby, playing a bunch of pool and watching a bunch of pool and all that kind of good stuff. But that's okay, though. You know, this too shall pass, and we'll get to talk about it next week and uh, and everything like that. So it's good stuff. We like to hear about pool action going on in the world. It's good. It's a good thing. So, uh, Mark, before we put anybody to sleep, uh, is there anything else you want to throw in for the week? Nope, I think, like I said, it's a, sh- it's, it, it's a shame, but it's not a shame. It's a good thing that there's pool, you know, there's, there's a lot of things going on. It's just a shame that we can't talk uh, uh, with any uh, confidence as to what's happened, you know, or what's going to happen. Yeah, yeah. Uh, at this point. So, yeah, we'll, we'll, like I said, we'll just have to wait and see. Yes, sir. 
All right. Well, best of luck to all the rest of the players out there finishing up at the Derby. And if you're out there at Derby, have a lot of fun. Be careful. And uh, we'll see you guys next week right here on American Billiard Radio. Well, as you all know, sometimes I like to throw a little bit of history into the mix. And uh, seeing how we are right in the middle of Derby City, the biggest pool event in the country, um, you know, I figured I would throw some little historical tidbit in that was related to uh, all the pool playing and gambling that's going on. (laughs) So I found this cool little uh, blurb from the newspaper, and I'm going to share it with you. I want you guys to listen to this and tell me what year you might think this might be from. It's a little story about gambling. So tell me what year you might think this be from uh, this might be from and uh, go to AZ Billiards and uh, uh, our post about the show and let us know or shoot me an email or something and see if you can guess it or get pretty close. I think you'll be a little bit surprised at the uh, at the when this took place but so here's your little historical gambling tidbit for the week it's describing a gambling uh, or a uh, a pool room in New York that is famous for action so this is a description from uh, that room it says 25 years ago it was the favorite resort of first-class first gamblers. There was a billiard room in the rear for the exclusive use of the professional gamblers. All the heavy matches were played upon those tables. Hiram, the Albany Pony, as he was called, once played a match in this room for $2,000. It was supposed that he was the best player in the world, and he was pitted against a southern gambler named Miller. They were to play a certain number of games. The winners, the winner of the greatest number, of course, would be the winner of the match. Moccasin Jackson, and a rich old businessman, but a great lover of the sport, was the pony's backer, and no one doubted that he would win the match, as he was constantly playing and had the run and the hang of the table. The day arrived and play commenced, Hiram leading off in fine style, but at last he began to miss his most favorite shots. The betting got the betting became brisk, reaching at least twenty five thousand dollars. It had rained during the day and the table was damp. Hiram made no allowance for this, but played as usual. And, of course, frequently failed. Miller, on the contrary, played to suit the table. And, contrary to all expectation, won the match. It's very interesting. Very interesting. The, um... Yeah, I won't even... I'm not, I'm, I don't want to give you any clues to tell you what year it's from. But, sounds like it could have taken place yesterday. So give it some thought and uh, let me know what uh, year you think that was from. And I will either post it or I'll tell you guys next week when that was. All right. See you next week.
welcome back everybody. This is the portion of the show where we are currently reading a book called The Fabulous Mr. Ponzi, uh, the autobiography of three-time world pocket billiard champion Andrew D'Alessandro, otherwise known as Andrew Ponzi. And we are on chapter six. If you have not caught all the previous chapters, uh, feel free to go back to our archive on our website, www.americanbilliardradio.com, and uh, listen to the previous five episodes to catch the first five chapters. So here we go, chapter six. Offers began to pour in from other cities. It seemed that everybody wanted to see the new champion. Levy suggested that we make a tour before the season closed to cash in on the prestige that accompanies the winning of a championship title. It had been eight long years since I had made my first road tour under Levy's management. I had played in all of the 48 states of our union and in most of the principal cities. What once had appeared as a pleasant jaunt full of adventure was now fast becoming monotonous routine. Out west to Montana, over the hump and to the state of Washington, down the west coast to San Diego, California, and back east through the Imperial Valley. That was our usual yearly route. This time when we left New York, there were three of us. In the rear of the auto, Baby Delia cooed content, contentedly, contently in her car hammock, while at my side, Madeline explained all about baby formulas and other matters of child hygiene that every new father must soon learn. As I sat at the wheel of my car, gazing at the long stretches of road ahead, memories of my first trip with Madeline came to mind. Then it all seemed like a glorious holiday. Then it all seemed like a glorious holiday. Now I was disillusioned and sick of constantly being on the go. The novelty and glamour of the road had long since faded. Now my thoughts reverted to a little home where Madeline, the baby, and I could enjoy a normal, peaceful existence. Driving from two to three hundred miles daily, sleeping in cold hotel rooms, grabbing a, mag a meal here, snatching a bite there, and the mad rush to make my engagements on time all added to our discomfort. Besides, we realized it was not conducive to the welfare and health of our firstborn to be reared in this manner. I determined to do something definite about these things upon my return to New York City. For some time, the owners of the Capitol, Broadway's largest bowling and billiard academy, had been dangling an offer before me in the form of a one-year contract carrying a suitable bonus. Madeline urged me to accept it at the end of our season. Levy suggested that it would give me respite from the rigors of road work and would permit our closely knit group to live in a normal home life for at least a year. I decided to accept, and when we returned to New York in May, I was installed as manager. 
Sam came with me to do the publicity work for the various matches it was my intention to produce. At that time, the Capitol had a very fine exhibition room, and every week we would announce a new match against the outstanding three-cushion and pocket billiard stars. Some of America's greatest stage, radio, and sports celebrities patronized the Capitol. Leo Lindy, famous Broadway restaurateur, came in for his daily exercise at table tennis. Bean Crosby and brother Bob would relax with a game of pocket billiards. And I can still recall Bing's musical voice as he greeted with, as he greeted me with, Aloha there, Panzola. Arthur Rubinstein, concert pianist, who has thrilled thousands with his music, was a ball flying fan, a game at which he excelled. While the songwriting world was re represented was represented by Milton Ager, Sammy Lewis, and George Myers. One of the most interesting personalities was that of Mr. Francis Wilson, veteran stage star, and never tired as he regaled me with stories of early show business days. Meeting all those wonderful people, coupled with the surcease of road work and the joys of home life, made my duties a joy. I shall always associate the capital with some of the pleasantest days of my playing career. Our business prospered to such, a, to such extent that my employers offered to build me the finest billiard room in America if I would continue to stay on in New York City. I had often toyed with the idea of going into business for myself. I had resolved, if my plans ever matured, to make it a dream billiard hall with every possible convenience for the patrons. Soft and direct lighting, air conditioning, and an interior decoration that would give it a luxurious club-like atmosphere. While I was considering the matter, the National Billiard Association announced it had completed plans for a world championship tournament to be played in the Pennsylvania Hotel in New York City that spring. To my amazement and distress, I learned that all games would be played on a new type of equipment with a bed of purple cloth instead of the traditional, traditional green. Perhaps readers are not acquainted with the fact that one becomes reconciled to the green cloth, which has been standard for years. Playing on a cloth of another color throws a man considerably off his game. Unaccustomed to purple cloth, I was reluctant to hazard a chance. The strange color presented a mental hazard which would not have permitted me to play my best game. So rather than risk my title, I retired as undefeated champion. Incidentally, this tour in which I refused to participate was won by Jimmy Karras of Wilmington, Delaware. Meanwhile, I accepted my, employee, er, my employer's offer to put me into business. The site chosen was in the Bond Building, Bond Building, at 46th Street and 7th Avenue, just a few blocks from the famed Times Square. Early in the fall of 1936, my new room was completed. Never before had I seen such a beautifully appointed billiard room. 
My employers had carried out my every wish, even to the huge neon sign over the doors that blazed with but one word. Ponzi's. Our opening night was a gala occasion, marked by the presence of many note noted cueists and stage stars, besides a host of newspaper writers. They were all thrilled by the modernistic resplendence of the new establishment. A wide Hollywood staircase spiraled in leisurely curves from the street into the center of the circular cocktail lounge. The lighting effects were described by Janet Owen's famous columnist in this manner. In a glow of dull copper and subdued lighting, the game of billiards emerged from its traditional workshop setting. Burnished orange walls catch the light thrown up from inside a high gold molding and flank a 30-foot bar. Opposite the mirror wall, the lounge opens into the billiard room. 21 tables await those who are interested. A small, a small theatorium had been erected, and some of the stellar billiardists who performed against me were Hoppy, Moscone, and Crane. Syndicated columnists were lavish in praising the elegance of the new room. The stories they wrote were carried by papers throughout the United States and were instrumental in bringing us many visitors from other cities. Many strangers would introduce themselves by simply saying, Hey, I saw you play in Madison, Wisconsin, or some other city. Sometimes it would be a familiar face perhaps a room own owner for whom I had played in some distant city. They all made it a must to visit Ponzi's. Milton Burl, famous comedian, was a steady patron. Milton liked to play against me, and though I granted him big odds, he never came out on the winning end. One day, after I had trounced him ra rather badly at three cushion, he exclaimed, On your own equipment, of course you win, Ponzi. Come on over to the Friars Club and I'll turn the tables on you. A great many fans were interested in the high runs I had made, and one curious visitor wanted to know, is it very difficult to run a hundred balls? Not at all, I answered. All you do is make one ball at a time. Many inquired if I intended to engage in championship competition again and sports writers, as well as the fans, began to clamor for a match between Karras and myself. Each of, us, each of us had our supporters and camp followers, and many hot and meritorious arguments both ways were waged regarding our, perspective, our respective abilities. The Police Gazette entered the controversy by offering to back me against any player in the world for $1,000 a side. In a ringing sports editorial, the editors said, in part, We believe that Andrew Ponzi is the greatest pocket billiard player in the world today. We state, and without equivocation, that there is one, only one, past or present champion included, who can beat him in a match game. And we are backing up these with a cash wager of $1,000. We are ready to match that sum against anyone in the world who will engage Ponzi in a match game, the opponent to be the opponent to set the time and place. 
Naturally, all this publicity pleased me highly, and I felt that Karis must must sooner or later yield to the pressure of public, of a public opinion or else lose the prestige that becomes a champion. At last, Jimmy consented to meet me in a championship tournament if such could be arranged. The National Billiard Association did not expect to promote another tournament until the fall of 1938, so I saw little prospect of such a meeting. But suddenly help came from an unexpected source. Mr. Jack Polanski, an automobile tycoon and a rabid amateur billiard fan, offered to promote such a tournament with $8,000 in prize money as an inducement. Then followed days of feverish excitement as we phoned and wired and wrote to all parts of America in order to contact players of, ch of championship caliber. Anofrio Laurie, Benny Allen, Ralph Greenleaf, and Charles Seaback came into the fold early. Karras was offered a stiff bonus to lay his title on the line, and we breathed a sigh of relief when he finally signed. Without the title holder, there would have been no sense or purpose in holding the tournament. Comprising the rest of the field were Faye Gaynor, Erwin Rudolph, Irving Crane, Marcel Camp, Willie Moscone, and myself. When all the players were signed and all entry fees and prize monies posted, we were ready to start the ballyhoo. The entire 16th floor of the Bond building was converted into a playing arena. Bleachers and opera chairs to accommodate a thousand spectators were provided. From the very opening game, the matches drew such crowds that we were compelled to sell standing room only at most of the games. J.P. Allen, Arthur Perrin, Louis Erfrat, Tom Meany, and Hyde Turkin, as well as many other noted sports writers whose names I cannot recall at the moment, beat the publicity drums and assisted in making it the most successful billiard, billiard tournament ever held in New York City. We started play the last week of March 1937. In the early stages, the lead fluctuated from one player to another. First it was Laurie, then Greenleaf, or Crane. But then as the end drew near, the classes of the field began to assert itself, and it resolved into a duel between Greenleaf, Karras, Crane, and myself. Two days before the tournament was scheduled to finish, Greenleaf, Crane, Karras, and myself were in a four-way tie. Crane was the first man eliminated. The next day, Greenleaf. Karras and I played a round robin to break the deadlock. Karras was defeated by Greenleaf and me. That night, Greenleaf and I crossed cues in the crucial game that meant the title and thousands of dollars to the winner. Now, I had been carrying the burden of my business for some time. Greeting customers, arranging details of the tournaments, attending to 101 little duties that are all part of the management of a business establishment. To top it all off, I had been playing in a hectic tournament for 21 days. And it is no exaggeration to say that I viewed this final engagement with Greenleaf with a feeling of genuine relief. From the opening shot, I dominated the game. The joust was marked by Greenleaf's dilatory tactics. As soon as I started an extended run, 
he would ask the referee for permission to leave the room. This meant that I had to break the continuity of my stream, take a seat, and wait until he, Greenleaf, has returned to the playing enclosure. The third time this happened, I objected strenuously, but was overruled by the referee. As I sat in my chair, waiting Greenleaf's return, my temper rose to the boiling point at which I thought this was exceedingly poor sportsmanship. When he did return to resume play, the score stood 105 to 72 in my favor. I tucked away another rack, bringing my count up to 119. All I needed was to pocket six more balls in their proper receptacles, and the title plus first prize money would all be mine. Suddenly, there was a tumult in the outer hall. Loud voices were raised in anger. All heads turned in that direction as a curious audience tried to fathom what, was, what the shouting was about. The referee stopped play when the doorman came over to the playing enclosure and said, It's Mr. Ponzi's bartender. He insists upon seeing him at once. He says it's very important. Forgotten for the moment were all thoughts of the game, the title at stake, the money involved. Wild thoughts raced through my mind. Something must have gone wrong with Madeline or the baby. Perhaps it was a fire or a holdup. Surely it must be a matter of extreme importance if I am called at a time like this. I ran to the door. What is it? What is it, I cried. What has happened? Mr. Ponzi, my bartender reported. The cash register is all out of tape. Where in the hell do you keep the tape? I was stunned. I was speechless. To choose a time such as this to annoy me with such a trifling matter was more than I could bear. I walked back to the table with a feeling of utter weariness such as I had never known before. My work, the tournament play, all the petty annoyances I had suffered in the, la in the past 30 days took its toll right there. Because when I resumed play, I missed the break shot. Greenleaf fairly leaped out of his seat. This opportunity was a reprieve to a condemned man. It was the break he had been silently praying for all evening, and I realized he had the ability to make the most of it. Slowly and cautiously, he called ball after ball. He knew that if he missed or got out of position, it would be doubtful if he would ever get another shot. So he called into play all the, all the skill and experience that years of seasoning had given him. All I could do was sit and wait. In games, in games involving body contact, one has a chance to put up some sort of defense. A wild swing in baseball might produce a home run that evens up the game. A haymaker brought up from the floor in sheer desperation by an apparently beaten fighter may be the knockout blow that gives him the victory.
but in billiards you have no defense when your opponent is at the table on an extended run. All you can do is sit helplessly in your chair and fume and fret while you bite your nails right down to your elbow. The layman who plays just for pleasure cannot understand this reaction. Only the professional player who depends upon a winning effort for his bread and butter knows what it is to suffer this. Believe me, it's enough to turn the eight ball white. Greenleaf was coming perilously close to the 53 ivories he needed to complete the game. Intuition seemed to tell me he was not going to miss. That inner voice seemed to whisper, You're a goner, Ponzi. This guy is going to run out on you. When Ralph only needed four more balls, with the table wide open, I started to disjoint my two-piece cue. I knew it was all over. I had lost my title. It would be a long, slow climb before I wore the pocket crown again. That concludes chapter six. Join us again next week for chapter seven of the fabulous Mr. Ponzi, right here on American Billy Radio.